our first lesson for this evening. Remember, our theme for worship tonight is actually talking about meaning, the meaning of life. And our first lesson is from Romans 13, verses 8 through 14, where we come to some kind of recognition that spending our lives in light of the gospel, in light of eternity, means not living just by feelings, means not just living by instincts. That's what animals do. All they can do is live by instinct. All they can do is live by their gut. But we're, you know, made for more and responsible for more and delight in more. We read from Romans 13. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. In other words, think about it. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Here ends our first lesson. Our teaching tonight comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, again, a topic of meaning. And here King Solomon writes the following. He says, I said to myself, he's talking to himself here, just so we're all on the same page. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure actually accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind's still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was actually gained under the sun. This is God's word. In many respects, Ecclesiastes should probably be the first book of the Bible. In the way that we order the books of the Bible, uh, I would argue that for modern people, Ecclesiastes maybe should be first because it, it asks the questions that modern people tend to ask about God, about life, existential types of questions. And it's interesting, in the opening verses of Ecclesiastes, in the first chapter, the author reveals himself to be King Solomon. 
But he doesn't call himself King Solomon. He refers to himself in Hebrew, it's Koheleth. And that is a Hebrew phrase that you can translate in your English Bibles a couple different ways. Sometimes it's teacher, sometimes it's professor, sometimes it's philosopher. And I think philosopher is probably the best one. Because what he does throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is he uses this ancient technique that's referred to as Socratic dialogue. Socratic dialogue is a system of teaching by which you don't just declare things to people. You just don't just declare truths and facts, but you ask pointed questions that evoke thoughtful responses from your listeners. It's very much, by the way, the way that professional counseling works. Research is very clear on this, that if uh, you just lecture to people about what is true in their lives, they tend not to internalize the truth. It isn't until they get to the point of what they perceive as self-discovery that they start actually implementing truths in their lives. This is the whole basis for like cognitive behavioral therapy. And therefore, a, a good counselor is not just going to tell you stuff for 60 minutes. They're going to ask you the right questions along the way. And by the way, uh, professional counseling in the United States for adults in the last 20 years has gone from uh, about 25 million adults any given year to about double that, uh, close to 50 million, um, just in the course of about 20 years, which what that tells us then from a data analysis standpoint, that suggests that American adults are self-opting into thinking differently at an incredible rate. In other words, as a society, we seem to be suggesting that we know our current way that society is teaching us to think is not working all that well. We need a Koheleth to come in and expose our inconsistent, self-destructive assumptions about God, about life, and about ourselves. One of the interesting things here about what Solomon is doing is he's carrying out this Socratic dialogue, but he's carrying it out with himself. It's not with somebody else. It's, he's writing it down, but he's doing it with himself. And he's doing this thought experiment. And remember, Solomon is this very, very intelligent, very wise, very wealthy individual. He's not completely unlike American society in this way. It's actually very relatable. There's a sociologist by the name of Jonathan Haidt that has essentially proven that as prosperity in a culture rises, so seems to also rise depression rates right along with it, right? So Americans, highly educated, generally speaking, lots of prosperity, generally speaking, are rising in depression at extraordinary rates. Why is that? Well, Solomon is discovering that when he pursues anything under the sun, that's a key phrase, anything under the sun as though it's the actual meaning of life, and he places essentially the weight of God on that thing and tries to squeeze out of that thing what only God can otherwise give, what ends up happening is he sort of psychologically collapses underneath the pursuit of it. So what we're learning then is most of the pursuits that exist in our lives aren't particularly meaningful. And yet we inherently know that there is some semblance, there is some inherent meaning that exists in life. And so we need to figure out how to better pursue it. We're basing this teaching series on, uh, at least structured on a Tim Keller book called Making Sense of God. And he uses this little thought experiment in the book that I find really helpful. He says, if you have a friend that came to you and said, I want you to go and stand on the corner of the street, let's say uh, North and Holton, I want you to stand on the, on the corner of the street and uh, do it, just stand there on Tuesday afternoon from three to five o'clock. You would not do it unless he gave you a reason or she gave you a reason. In other words, you'd ask why, you know? 
Like, I'm sorry, I trust you, I like you, but what will this benefit anyone? What will this accomplish? What is the meaning of this? Why would I do that? And the catch is, if we're going to ask that question about a couple hours on a Tuesday afternoon, why on earth is the vast majority of our society not asking that question about how we spend our lives? You know? Like, and granted, all of society isn't right here, so let me just ask you. Do you know what the point of your life is? How do you know you're not wasting your life right now? Are you very confident about what you should be aiming at in the pursuits of your life? If you're not ever thinking about any of these questions, almost by definition, we're not living very thoughtfully. If you're just going kind of by how you feel and by your instincts, again, that's the basically how animals approach life. They just go by thoughts and intuitions and instincts. But humans have more responsibility than that. And therefore, we should be living for higher purposes than that. And to get at what exactly is the purpose and the meaning of that, we're going to ask these specific points tonight. We're going to address these specific questions. One, we're going to look at if we're, all we have is that which is under the sun, how do we address the problem of pain and suffering that exists in the world? We also need to look at the problem of pleasure that exists in the world. And finally, we're going to look at the one who traded pleasure for pain, long-term investment for greater pleasure. Okay, so the problem of pain, the problem of pleasure, the one who traded pleasure for pain for even greater pleasure. First of all, the problem of pain. There is a world-famous neuroscientist by the name of Sam Harris, who uh, he's not only a neuroscientist, he's also a really good student of East and Western religious traditions. Uh, about a decade ago, he wrote a best-selling book called The End of Faith, and he also has a top 10 science podcast in the world called Making Sense. I have several different skeptical friends that enjoy listening to Making Sense, and so I, I listen to it every week, too. And uh, recently, they had an episode called Making Sense of Death. And in it, he said this. I thought it was really interesting. He said, it has struck me. Now, he's, he's a secular man. He's a you know, pretty active, uh, willfully against organized religion. He said, it has struck me more and more that secularists and atheists are really lacking resources to guide them, both when they get sick and need to think about their own deaths or confront the deaths of those close to them. It's just a fact that there isn't a strong secular tradition around how to perform a funeral. No matter how atheistic you are, many people are left calling their rabbi or priest or asking them to dumb it down. The only language around these moments in life are explicitly framed by religion. Now, that's a, that's a fairly interesting admission, but I actually don't think it goes far enough because the non-theists don't lack resources per, for performing funerals simply because they lack tradition. You know, like if we just last a little bit longer, we'll have plenty of tradition to figure out how to do funerals. No, it's actually deeper than this, and Harris knows this. Without doing theology, there is a lack of fundamental substance for inserting meaning into events as tragic as death. Did you catch that? Unless you're doing theology and you're thinking about above the sun and you're thinking about beyond, there is a lack of fundamental substance for inserting meaning into something as tragic as death. And Harris and his colleague in this uh, particular episode basically agree that most humans are functionally living to try to avoid the concept of death. They just don't think about it. Like, let's just not think about it. And in those moments of life where it's just absolutely inevitable and unavoidable to address death, the way that you do that, the way that you leverage that, the reality of death, is that you use it to infuse meaning into the moments of every day. Like, so the hourglass is ticking down, and so you just have to make the most of every moment. And I'll tell you what, superficially, that sounds really kind of nice. It sounds kind of noble. 
In the same way that saying, no, you're not going to die. You'll, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. In a sense, at first glance, that actually sounds kind of noble. But it's fraught with a bunch of errors. So, for instance, if you say, well, when the hourglass is ticking down, just remind yourself to make the very most of every moment. What I would respond to that is, for instance, how does living with urgency compel you to care for people who require a lot of patience? It doesn't. If you only have a limited number of moments and then you walk by a needy person who you know drains your resources, you know what you're going to do? Walk faster. How is that going to bless society and make society a better place? For that matter, does making the most of every moment provide genuine comfort to like a young mother or father who has cancer who's coming to the realization that they're never going to see their child grow up? Does that provide comfort? Or the, actually the thing that is the most like rationalistically egregious to me, which a lot of leading secularists actually talk this way, people who believe in no afterlife, they will say, try not to think about it. That's by definition non-rational. You know, it's overtly like, don't think about it. Uh, now remember what Harris said, secular people lack the resources to confront death. Look how different that is from a Christian perspective and from an, even just an other religious perspective. How do we deal with death? Not by not thinking about it, but by thinking about it. By thinking about the afterlife, by thinking about who God is, by thinking about what he's done for us. Religion says you should think about it more, not less. And so what I'm saying is non-theism, not only does it lack the resources for dealing with death, I would also suggest it lacks the resources for actually processing life. There is a renowned orthopedic surgeon by the name of Dr. Paul Brand who started his medical career working over in India for many years. And then eventually he, he traveled back to the United States and he was so shocked by the cultural change of how different people groups processed suffering that he wrote a book about it called The Gift of Pain. And in that book, he put it like this. He said, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any that I had previously treated but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. Do you understand what he's saying? Uh, he's saying in the modern Western world, where the purpose of life, so far as he can tell, is to live for as much achievement, as much comfort, as much pleasure, as much security, your best life now. Live for it. Suffering is 100% at odds with that particular life goal. And subsequently, there's perhaps never been a civilization in history that while it simultaneously gave its people more basic resources for getting through life, also at the same time gave people so little for dealing with the inevitable brutalities that every human life experiences like death. In other cultures that don't have as much material things, but do have at least some sort of semblance of the transcendent, yes, pain is still pain. But pain doesn't rob you of your life's purpose. And in fact, if you're theistic, it actually, in some ways, helps you achieve your life purpose. So non-theism, it lacks resources for processing death. Non-theism also lacks resources for processing life. And uh, Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God, and actually, he does this in an even more detailed way. If you want to check out another Keller book, it's Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. But in that particular section, what he talks about is he said, even compared to other world religions, if we had it on a chart here and you say, what does each one teach about suffering? What he would suggest is, okay, so for instance, uh, Buddhism, unlike Buddhism, Christianity does not teach 
that suffering is illusory. It's just an illusion. Unlike Hinduism and other uh, practitioners of, of karma in the Eastern world, Christianity does not see suffering as a, it, it sees suffering as often unjust and disproportionate. In other words, when you're experiencing suffering in this lifetime, you're not just getting it for uh, bad stuff that you did in a former lifetime. That's karma, right? Christianity, unlike other sorts of moralistic and uh, dualistic societies and beliefs, doesn't find uh, in suffering a way to work off the debt that you owe for all the bad things that you've done and endear some kind of virtue of endurance with the divine. And finally, Christianity, unlike secular humanism, doesn't find suffering to be meaningless. Instead, in Christianity, what suffering is, it is a way that helps you let go of the things of this world that you shouldn't be too attached to. It's something that creates in you a longing for a bigger and better life. It's something that drives you deeper into the arms of your creator, God. It is something that allows you to participate in the sufferings of the Savior who died in your place. And it is something Christianity teaches that suffering will one day come to an end because Jesus ultimately paid it in full. Christians don't deal with suffering by not thinking about suffering. Christians deal with suffering by thinking about God more. And the gratitude that comes from that fuels our day-to-day -day lives with meaningful opportunity to worship God by putting him above all, putting others ahead of ourselves, and even crazy as it may be, because this life isn't all there is, we willfully enter into the suffering of the people around us because that's exactly what our Savior did for us. Okay? So, I'm going to say Christianity does a better job of addressing the problem of pain that exists in the world. The second point is the problem of pleasure, though, which might sound a little bit weird. If you've thought about the meaning of life before, I guarantee you've probably wrestled with this problem of pain. There's an entire wing of philosophy called theodicy dedicated to this. It's the basic idea of how do you reconcile the notion of a loving God with the inevitable suffering that exists in the world? And what I've said so far, what we're trying to say in the first point is that while suffering is, yes, to some extent, an intellectual problem for Christians, because we can't explain everything, it's a little bit head-scratching. Remember Job? It's not that Christians have all the answers to suffering. It's that one, suffering doesn't derail our life purpose, and two, suffering presents just as much or more of a problem for a secular non-theist. Because at least in Christianity, at least in religion, suffering has meaning. See, it's an intellectual, suffering is an intellectual problem for Christians, yes, but it's an even bigger problem for non-theists. Okay, well, the second part of this is the problem of pleasure. And again, that sounds sort of weird, perhaps unless you've wrestled with Ecclesiastes 2 before, because this gets at it better than any other text on earth. And here's what's going on. In Ecclesiastes 1, King Solomon was talking about the pursuit of wisdom in and of itself as the meaning of life. And what he came to find as the more intelligent I got, the more knowledge, the more wisdom, the more understanding, not only did it not completely satisfy me, in many ways it made me more sad. Because the more you contemplate the fallen world that exists, if that is all there is under the sun, it becomes depressingly meaningless. And so he said, I'm going to shift. Instead of just pursuing wisdom, I'm going to, with wisdom, pursue actually the more uh, sensory experiential aspects of life. I'm going to pursue tangible pleasure in life. And by the way, it's also worth saying here, in the same way that wisdom is not wrong, pleasure is not wrong. Tangible pleasure isn't wrong. In fact, God's the author of tangible pleasure. 
There's a great spot in 1 Timothy 6 where the Apostle Paul says to his young ministry pupil, Timothy, specifically, command those who are rich to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. In other words, he doesn't say don't enjoy the things of life like Stoics and ascetics and there's a bunch of religions and philosophies that actually operate that way. Uh, he doesn't say do, don't do that. He actually, the implicit opposite command is, is there, like enjoy things in life, be grateful for them, be thankful for them, taste and see that the Lord is good, but don't pursue them as though they're the ultimate thing in life. Don't pursue them as an idol like they're the meaning of your life or you will psychologically collapse under the weight of that. And that's what Solomon is starting to learn right here. What he's doing, he's running this thought experiment running this life experiment where he's now pursuing tangible sensory pleasures as though they are the meaning of life. And there's three specific areas that he highlights here. The first one in verses four through six is his accomplishments. These are his extraordinary building projects. He mentions uh, along the way, um, houses, vineyards, gardens and parks, reservoirs. It's all his building pro You notice the one thing that he doesn't mention is the temple because he didn't build a temple for himself and God directed him on how to build the temple. So he doesn't list that here. Interestingly enough, the Bible also teaches us that Solomon spent twice as much time building his own palace than he did spending building a temple. That's probably telling. But these are all, these are rich people projects. But along the way, they are driving scientific advancement. They are, they are, it's driving building techniques. It's driving aqueducts that are gonna last for centuries. This is, it's very, it's very Elon Musk of uh, Solomon at this point. Which, along with this, he is very wealthy. Uh, specifically, it mentions here male and female slaves, herds and flocks, silver and gold. Now, you got to remember that in the ancient world, enslavement was really not primarily an ethnic thing. It was an economic type of thing. So he's talking about how much money he has here. In fact, in 1 Kings 5, it mentions that Solomon employed over 100,000 workers in order to create the temple. In other words, he is the CEO of one of the largest corporations on the planet at this time. Not only that, he has hundreds of thousands of heads of cattle, and we actually are given a number about how much annual tribute he gets in gold. And I actually crunched the numbers on a gold calculator this past week, and it said that he gets over a billion dollars in modern money just in gold as annual tribute. So he's got more money than he knows what to do with. And the third thing that's mentioned here is his entertainment. Uh, specifically says male and female singers, which might mean a couple different things, but it also mentions his harem. Solomon took in the best concerts, the best uh, theater, the best sporting events. He always had the box seats. He denied himself nothing that his eyes desired. He had a harem. I mean, the Bible says he had 300 plus wives and 700 plus concubines. Interestingly enough, I appreciate the fact that he's at least intellectually honest about all this. Like, he doesn't say he didn't enjoy it. He actually says, yeah, I delighted in all this stuff. It's kind of like, you know, if somebody says, if, if the don't do drugs pitch is don't do drugs because you're not going to like it, that person is lying to you, right? If you want to say don't do drugs because it's going to completely ruin your life and it's going to blow up the lives of the people around you, yep, that's totally accurate. If you're going to say don't do a line of cocaine because you're not going to feel very good, that's a lie. It's the best you'll ever feel, right? So Solomon is intellectually honest about the momentary pleasure that comes by tasting of the good things that this world has to offer. The problem is that when he sobers up and he takes a step back, he says, look, if this is all there is, 
under the sun, then it's all absolutely meaningless. None of it's worth anything. And in fact, we're not going to get into like tolerance effects and addiction highs and stuff like that. But when you pursue things as though they are God, that's always why you get addicted to things in this life. Because you always need more and more and more because you're trying to make something that's not God, God. And it can't do it. And it enslaves you. Aiden and I were recently watching a TV show, A Mystery, where uh, it's about a couple who had been married for a while. And they, they went through tragedy early in marriage. They lost a child. But, you know, they both worked, they both worked hard and they did what people who, you know, can afford it and work hard do after a while as they went on like this all-inclusive vacation. And at one point in time, the main character, it's the longest like soliloquy in the series, the main character says this, she says, here's a dim realization I think that I just made this moment, which is that vacation is kind of like life. It's fun at first and you try new things, right? And you're like, ooh, new foods, new experiences. The sex with your partner is more fun. And then at a certain point, you're just so annoyed with them. And you've done all the excursions and you've tried all the food and you get bad indigestion and you're too sore and too lazy and too hungover to do anything but watch true crime shows in your hotel bed. And then after a while, you just want to go home. But then you get home and it isn't quite as good as you remembered. So you just want to go back on vacation. You know what she's describing? She could have saved herself a lot of disenchantment if she just led through Ephesians 2. Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained if all there is is that which is under the sun. That expression, chasing after the wind, that might be one of the most profound little phrases I've ever heard. You know what it means, chasing after the wind? You can feel the wind. You can benefit from the wind. But you can't actually ever hold on to the wind. Not for any kind of lasting time. And if you actually make it your life's pursuit, you are going to bounce through life waywardly disillusioned. And maybe the most important phrase in this whole deal is the very last one, the phrase under the sun. I've referenced it numerous times, uh, but not yet actually explained it. It's used over 30 times in Ecclesiastes is arguably like the theme of Ecclesiastes. You know what under the sun means? It means outside of consideration of anything above the sun. Outside of consideration of anything beyond the sun. Without consideration to God. Without consideration to the afterlife. Without consideration to the transcendent. Because if God is the one who created the universe, then by definition, God is over the sun. So if you're only concerned about stuff under the sun, you're not concerned about the afterlife, then anything that, by the way, if all there is that is that which is under the sun, anything that happens in this world, no matter how incalculably pleasurable or how excruciatingly painful, if this is all there is, it doesn't matter. None of it actually means anything. And if we're going to be real honest with ourselves for a second, 40 years after you die, no one thinks about you. No one cares. I promise you, no one will be daily thinking about you 40 years after you're gone. Maybe, maybe if you have a ton of money and you donate a bunch of money and you get your, uh, like get your name put on a building and then when people drive by and they see the name on the building, maybe they'll think about you at that point, not for long. By a couple hundred years, no way anyone thinks about you. 
And for that matter, I don't care if you're the most intelligent, most talented, most beautiful person that walks the planet who has changed more lives for the better than anyone, who has more online followers than anyone. Within 4,000 years, no one will ever think of you. And let's take it a step further. By the time the star at the center of our solar system runs out of energy within 4 million years, guess what? There's not going to be anybody to remember anything anyways. What difference does any of it ever actually make? It doesn't unless there's something beyond the sun. Brings us to the last point. If you sense that life does mean something, and, and not just in a sense that you get to make life mean whatever you want it to mean, because that's kind of the secular conception to meaning too, which is, by the way, it sounds nice, don't, don't buy it. Things can't mean whatever you want them to mean. If you adopt a tiger, and raise it as a rabbit, reality bites sometimes. It will. Things don't mean just what we want them to mean. Things mean what God implanted in them to mean. And if you intuit that your life actually means something, what that means is it's pointing you to something that goes above the sun. Uh, it's actually quite natural and reasonable. And actually, the most outrageous thing about Christianity, the most outrageous claim about Christianity is we... Uh, referred to this last week when we talked about the historical legitimacy of the facts surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection. But the most outrageous claim of Christianity is that the God who is over the Son sent his Son under the Son to redeem us in this little corner of the universe. You understand how crazy that is? The God over the Son, over the universe, sends his Son under the Son to die in our place for our sins and redeem us into God's family forever. Keller writes it like this in Making Sense of God. He says, The Christian teaching is that the entire human race is removed from the presence and love of God through our self-centeredness and sin. Therefore, all people wrestle at times with a sense of purposelessness. Why? Well, because we're not walking daily with our Father in the garden anymore. And so we don't know exactly what we're doing. However, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Christianity teaches that he died to take upon himself the penalty for our sin. He then experienced darkness, the meaninglessness of life without God. The Christian teaching is that Jesus was cut off from God as we deserved and paid the debt that we owed so that when we believe in him, we can receive God's love and forgiveness. And on the cross, Jesus Christ got life without God so that we could get eternal life with God. He was putting himself into our lives, our misery, our mortality, so that we could be brought into his life and his joy and his immortality. If right now you have any enhanced sense of futility and meaningless in your life, this is an opportunity by which God is intending to drive you deeper into the arms of your father. And as he saved you through the life and death of his son, he will guide you into the life and death pattern, the life and death pattern of his son, which is a lifestyle that impacts eternity. Let's close with prayer. Father, you loved us enough to send your son under the sun to pay for our sins. Help us now spend our lives 
under the sun for your glory in grace to others and eyes focused even beyond. It's in your name we pray, amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.